viewer Nacha here. It is such a privilege for me to be sharing the word with you today. More so, it is even more of a privilege just to be in your space, even though it is virtual. I have deep, deep respect for your leadership team and your senior pastors. Uh, many of them are friends of mine and your senior pastors have invested so much in my life. Um, before I even get to the message, I want to commend you as a church just for your faithfulness, your love for God, your continual bringing of the kingdom in our beautiful city of Johannesburg. It is a privilege to partner alongside of you uh, as the Every Nation Johannesburg family, as we are called to make disciples in this beautiful city. So again, great privilege to be with you today. There are uh, about three things for me that keep me up at night. The first one I would call dignity, maybe even integrity. You see, my father, Uzuzile, gave me a name, my surname. He got it from my grandfather, Kepusa, who in turn got it from my great-grandfather. Now, this name, my wife has graciously decided to take on this name upon herself, and together we've given this name to our kids. What keeps me up at night is this one simple thing. Am I living the kind of life before God and before men that my kids can be proud of? That they can walk into the world, look back at the, at the inheritance and their heritage and go, man, we can keep our heads up high because we know where we come from and we have a strong foundation. The second thing that keeps me up at night, to be honest, is my family, especially when they're in pain. There is nothing that I hate and I wrestle more than uh, pain. Uh, especially when it's with my wife or kids. You know, I've watched my wife go through loss and betrayal. I've watched my daughter get bullied in school. I've seen my son uh, born with uh, an ailment. Um, all those things I've prayed, Lord, just give them to me. A prayer that he hasn't answered yet, but I'm still working on it. Still got a while to go. I just don't like seeing people I love in pain. So that keeps me up at night. But the third thing that keeps me up at night is the church I get to lead, um, Every Nation Bryanston. Uh, when we started off, everyone had told me the most stressful Sunday of your church planting life is gonna be the first Sunday. Wasn't true, it's always the second and the third because you like wondering who's gonna stay around for this craziness? Like who's even gonna do this thing, right? Uh, but to be honest, that, that's not what keeps me up at night. What keeps me up at night is not whether or not people will come back the next week. I would love them to, uh, but that's not what keeps me up at night. What keeps me up at night is not whether or not people consider me to be likable or they like the church. I think I'm a likable guy, but I know that there are a number of people who do not think I'm likable. And I know that eventually I'm going to offend someone. And I'm almost sure that our church is gonna do some weird stuff. Um, and even if we don't, sometimes life just happens. People move on, people go certain places, sometimes they find another area where they are connected to and, and they decide to move to that church. All those things happen. None of those things keep me up at night. When I think about the church, what keeps me up at night is this one simple thing. Will they obey Jesus? Will they obey Jesus? 
right? All, all, all that we're doing, every, every connect group, every Sunday, every uh, uh, moment where we are functioning as a community beyond the events that we do, every time we preach the word, every time we pray, every time we counsel, what is happening in my mind is at the end of the day, will we obey Jesus? Because here's what I can tell you, friends. There is never a season in your life. There will never be a season in your life where obedience won't matter. Whether you are having a terrible day or a great day, whether everything is going your way or you feel like hell has broken loose, every single moment, every single day, there will never be a moment in your life where to obey Jesus won't matter. Now, I get it. For, for some of us listening to this, the idea of words like obedience, sacrifice, um, uh, 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 submission, lordship, these words kind of feel suffocating. And maybe with the right reason, because some of us maybe have grown up in environments where people have used these words to manipulate, to abuse. May the Lord heal us from the, those pains. May the Lord heal us from that brokenness, from that hurt. Some of us maybe have sat under a great teaching from amazing men and women who are faithful to God, faithful to their churches, but yet, as much as they preach the word, and I consider myself to be one of these preachers, sometimes they preach their hurts, they preach their pains, they preach their opinions. And what my generation has failed to do is to differentiate between that which is the oracles of God and that which is the wounds of men. And so what we've ended up doing, we've thrown out the bad along with the good. Categorically, let me say this to you now, obedience is good. It is good for you. It is good for your soul. It is good for your family, for your friends. It is good for your work. It is good for your outlook on life. It is good for our nation. Obedience is good. At times it is difficult, but it's always worth it. There will never be ever a moment where obedience won't matter. Today, I, I kind of want to look at two simple questions in the hope that it might renew your mind about the importance, the urgency, and the reason for obedience. Two questions I want to answer today. One, who do we obey? Secondly, why do we obey? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 5. We're going to be from verse 16 all the way to verse 20. Let's get to work. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Father, help us today. As we read your word, as we hear your word, may you speak directly to our souls. I pray, Lord, even before the rush of 
preaching this word, hearing this word. May there be a calm in our homes. May there be a calm in our hearts and consider the words of Jesus. Amen. The context of where we are in the scriptures is that Jesus is walking by a place called the Pool of Bethesda. It's on a Sabbath. There is probably hundreds of people by this pool. It was known to have a whole bunch of people who are paralytic, blind, deaf, a whole bunch of people with different ailments who are all trying to get to this mysterious pool. Now, the story goes that every now and again, this pool would be somehow supernaturally stirred. And when it starts swirling around, you needed to try and rush to get into the pool. And if you get in, you will be healed. So everybody would try and push and find a way to get in. But this man, this man that Jesus goes to and heals is a paralytic man. He's been sitting on the same mat for 38 years. Jesus gets to him and he heals him. And word goes out, a little bit of commotion goes out because now the religious leaders have found out that Jesus has done a good thing on the wrong day. Hmm. That would preach, won't it? How, how Jesus is the kind of God who is willing to go through all kinds of restrictions, uh, go through all kinds of hurdles, break all kinds of things so that he might get to you, get his love to you, get his promise to you, get his grace to you, get his healing, his presence to you. He is the kind of God who does good things on wrong days. The religious leaders are upset. They, they want to persecute Jesus and Jesus... lens, we, we, we're not hearing what the original hearers would have heard. Because clearly, whatever they heard, it, they were so astounded by what Jesus has said that in verse 18, it says that this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, there are certain perceptions out there uh, and certain religions out there that would say that nowhere in Christianity does the Bible uh, point to Jesus claiming that he is God. And the, the, the same religions would say that Jesus was a good man who was a great prophet. And for that, he's worthy for us considering his wise sayings and his great advice and prophetic insight. But nowhere in scripture do we find Jesus claiming to be God. This is not true. This text is just one of many where there is clearly a claim. And the reason we know that Jesus is making a claim that he himself is God is the way the early hearers hear it. What they hear is that he is making himself equal to God. What they understand is that he is claiming to be God. 
And even as he uses the word, my father, this aggravates the religious leaders because you wouldn't do this. There's no way you would call God your father because when, when a father would take their firstborn son or maybe even begotten son out into the marketplace and he would teach the son his trade, eventually what would happen is that the, the same authority that was on the father would be on the son. That basically, the, that as they go into the world, People who interact with the son would interact with the son as if they're interacting with the father. Now, as much as this example uh, falls short in light of what we're trying to understand in Jesus being God, the reality is the father and the son, the Bible tells us, are one. When you've seen the son, you've seen the father. This is what Jesus is communicating. He even continues to, to communicate it by, by comparing God's work to his work. So you know why then Jesus is healing on the Sabbath? Because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He is Jesus who is God. He is the Lord of the Sabbath who's created the Sabbath for his creation, for humans. So that humans, hear me, might not live as slaves to this world, but might through rest lived as loved ones of God. Some of you might be saying, Siv, this is elementary stuff. Like, really? Did they bring you all the way out here to just teach us on Christianity 101? Well, here's my response. You see, the reason why this text is so important is that we have to ask ourselves this question. Are we obeying Jesus like he is God? Or are we obeying him like he's a great advisor, like he's a phenomenal consultant, like he's a good man with great advice and great prophetic insight? How are you obeying Jesus? Are you obeying Jesus fully aware that the one you obeying is God? You see, later on in the text, we know this to be true because in, in, in verse 20, uh, 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 verse 21 of John chapter 5, it goes on to say, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Who will give life to whom He will? It will be Jesus, the Son. Then it goes on to say, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. So I know there's some of us who like to think Jesus is the nice guy. You see, like the God of the Old Testament, he's a bit weird, but Jesus is nice. Let me tell you who will judge on judgment day. It will not be God the Father. It will be Jesus. And Jesus will allow everyone to go eternally to the direction of their deepest longing. Jesus will allow everyone to go to the direction of, of the deepest desire. It is Jesus. Jesus is the one who will judge. The Son will judge. Jesus is God. Are you obeying him like he is God? In other words, have you orientated your life around Jesus in such a way that your obedience is a reflection of trust. Do you trust him that this man is not a good man? He is 
the God man. He is not just a savior. He is the sovereign king. He's not just the lamb. He is the lion. He is not just a prophet, but he is the king of kings. That is Jesus. If you would allow me just for a moment to give you a little bit of advice. If Jesus is God, then it means that Jesus has the last say and the highest word. He has the last say and the highest word. And if he has the last say and the highest word, if Jesus is God, can I advise you in this way? For those of you who consider yourselves to be more conservative in your outlook on life, if Jesus is God, can I ask you to stop assisting God? But that I mean, sometimes we, we, we go through this life assuming that, well, Jesus doesn't fully get how crazy terrible this life is and we need to protect people from the world. And the way we're gonna do that, we're just gonna put more laws and more laws and more things for people to do so that we might protect them from the world and then we will call this love. But ours is to direct people to Jesus. Ours is to proclaim him, demonstrate him to the world and say, this is what Jesus is like. This is who Jesus is. He is God. He is the way and he loves you. And instead of putting more laws on people like the religious people of this day that we are reading about now in John chapter five, we do well to stop assisting God and calling it love. We do well to trust him with his creation. For those of you who might have a more liberal view of life, would you stop protecting people from God? Right? Stop protecting people from God and kind of calling it protecting them from religion. But you see, but when the people go into the world, we, 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 we call it, well, we'll support them, we're behind them, we get it, we don't fully understand. But no, 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 what we actually are struggling to do is that we don't wanna offend anyone. We, we, we don't wanna say to anyone, hey, there is a way, and that way is Jesus. He is the aletheia. He is the reality, that's what that word means. He is the full, truth, the full reality of what life is meant to be like. And, and we don't want to seemingly by proclaiming good news be on the outs with other people. We don't want seemingly by proclaiming who Jesus is as God to seem like we're offending people or oppressing people. The reality is you need to trust God. God with his creation. Yours is to direct people to him, to point them to him, to go out into the world, to proclaim and to demonstrate that Jesus is who he says he is. You need to trust God. How? By, by, by living a life that reflects that trust. He's God, he's good, he's, he loves his creation. It's interesting, I had COVID recently, and um, in the middle of my COVID, my son started walking. I was in isolation at the house, and my last born son, Lenoir, started walking. He's about one years old. And um, when I would open the door, he would walk towards me, but I couldn't grab him. So my wife and the kids would normally grab him before he gets to me so that he wouldn't get the virus. 
But after two weeks of doing this, what ended up happening is that when I finally got out of isolation and I opened up my arms to my son to invite him to come to me, you know what happened? He would look at me, take one step towards me, and then he would turn around and he would go to somebody else. Why? Because he had been trained. He had been uh, taught not to come to me. He had been protected from me. Dare I say, this might be bad, but I'm going to say it anyway. If God has a virus, we all need to catch it. You understand that? That he is a loving God who wants to be with these people. Stop protecting people from a loving, good God who wants what's best for his creation. Our obedience is a reflection of trust. Our obedience is a reflection of trusting that Jesus is who he says we is. You see, the person we obey is not culture, not the church, not religion, not all, the, not all these things. We obey Jesus. Secondly, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, which colloquially can be translated into Jacob Zuma's words, uh, uh, Listen carefully. Um, is it too soon? I, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. What is Jesus saying? Here's what he's saying. I have submitted and restricted my life so that I might only do what I see the father doing. I have deliberately lived my life in such a way that I don't do anything and everything else except for the one thing that the Father showed me to do. Submission is good when it's to God. Restriction is good when it's to God. Because what then happens in this verse, what we understand is that through the works of Jesus, Jesus demonstrates to the world what God the Father is like and what God the Father is doing. If you ever wondered right now, in the midst of all the craziness in our nation, maybe even in your life, what is God doing? He is restoring and he is redeeming all things to himself. But why? Why does the God-man submit this way? Why does the God-man restrict himself and obey in such a radical manner as this? Why does Philippians 2 tell us that this man, Jesus, this God-man, literally took on flesh. He put on the burden of humanity and he submitted himself all the way unto death, even the death of the cross. Why this kind of obedience? Very simple. The next verse tells us, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son. Hmm. Can you comprehend what the Father loving the Son must be like? This is pre-creation kind of love. This is, this is the Godhead, Trinity kind of love. You see, if, if God was just one God, not three in one, then it would mean that he would need to create in order to love. But if he is Trinity, if he is one God, eternally one, but also eternally three distinct person, therefore it means God created because he loves. This is the kind of love that Jesus has experienced from, 
from before you and I could even understand what it means to say in the beginning, before all of that, there was a kind of love that permeated from the father to the son that allowed the son to obey so radically. Why do we obey? It's because of love. Now you might say, well, that's how the father loved the son. What about me? Don't you realize that the cross is the, the, the son loving you? Is the father loving you with that same love, with that same pursuing, un, unhindered, untainted, eternal, unconditional kind of love? You see, one of the reasons I know this is that in Luke 15, there are these three parables that are, are, are scattered throughout this beautiful chapter. The first one is a parable of the lost sheep. Second one, parable of the lost coin. And the last one, famously known as the parable of the prodigal son, the lost son. You see, what we tend to do, we tend to uh, focus on the condition of the sheep, the coin, and the son. They are lost, but we miss the crescendo of the text, the crescendo of the parable. What the parable is trying to focus in on is not primarily the condition of the sheep, the condition of the coin, the condition of the son. What the parable is focusing on is the pursuit of the father. You see, the, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one because he loves the one. The, the woman throws everything aside to go and search for the coin. There is a pursuing for the coin because a coin is precious and it's, and it's wanted, it's desired. The father stands outside the house and he waits patiently, looking out by the road, waiting for his son to come home. And when his son come home, he runs towards his son in such an undignified fashion, but he grabs his son, gives him the best robes. He gives him a ring. He brings him in and he celebrates him. The parables are about his love, not about our lostness primarily. It's about how God loves us in our worst conditions. We obey not only as a reflection of trust, but we obey as a response to love. Are you, do you know how loved you are that God would send his only begotten son so that in him you might have life? I want to end with a story. Uh, this guy by the name of Eddie Rickenbacker, he was a World War I vet, a fighter pilot. Near the end of his life, he was known for rather a, a weird thing that he did every single Friday. Every Friday, he would go down to the shop near the pier. He would buy the best shrimp that he could find. He'd walk down to the pier and he would take the shrimp and he would throw it towards the seagulls. And every time he would throw a shrimp, he would just say, thank you, thank you. Thank you. No one knew why he was doing. No one could understand why he was doing. But one day he told the story and here's what happened. See, he, as a World War I vet, wanted to go into World War II, but because he was too old, they wouldn't let him. And so they assigned him to a specific mission where he and seven other men had to go over to Hawaii, fly over the Pacific and do a particular mission with a bunch of generals on their way back the plane crashed over the Pacific. And here are these seven men, they're all stranded. They are literally uh, uh, sitting, lying on a raft. 
And after a couple of days of finishing all the food that they had, uh, one of the guys on the raft, they died. They had to roll him off the raft. And they are spending just days without food. Terrible conditions. But in one of the moments of just complete weakness, brokenness, starving, out of nowhere, a seagull walked up onto the raft. And its feet was on the head of Eddie. Everyone in the raft is looking at Eddie like, catch it, catch it, catch it. And Eddie just moves his hand and he grabs the seagull and he pulls it down. And they open the seagull up and they start eating it raw. But they keep the insides, the intestines of the seagull, they keep it so that they might use it to fish. And so that they might be able to have more food. They stayed out there for about 24 to 26 days and they survived because of the insides, the intestines of the cigar that they used to fish for more fish. So every Friday, Eddie would go to the shop. He would buy the best shrimp and he would go down to the pier and with every shrimp, he would throw them towards seagulls. And he would just say, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know why? Because somewhere in Eddie's mind, what he understood was this, that this seagull laid down its life so that I might live. What he understood was that this seagull gave of himself so that I might have life. And the only way then for me to respond is to respond out of gratitude, knowing how much this seagull has done for me. And therefore it makes sense, though everybody else might think I'm weird, though everyone else might not understand why I do this every single Friday by the pier, just to say thank you with every shrimp, with every, uh, the best shrimp I can find, I just give it to these seagulls in response. You see, a seagull died for you. But this, this was a God-man. You see, the one we obey is Jesus, the God-man. He, he, he is the one that we obey, but he is also the one who demonstrated his love by dying on the cross for us. Now there is life for anyone who would look to him and say, I trust, I believe, I respond to your love and I give my life to you. Anyone who does that will have eternal life. And it's always worthwhile for us to live our lives obeying Jesus as a reflection of our trust and obeying Jesus as a response to his love.